Well, welcome everybody. This is Stephen Kent Mirasu of the Wine Saves Lives podcast. And I'm extremely honored and happy to be talking to an old friend and uh, someone at the top of his profession, Jim Rolston, who is the wine director of the three-star Michelin restaurant Manresa. He's also a master sommelier, uh, as well as an educator and a musician and a, a whole bunch of great things. Jim, welcome. Good morning. Morning. Uh, thanks for having me, Steve. Good to be here with you. Thank you very much. So w- what's longer, a dog year or a restaurant year? Oh, restaurant year, definitely. We just <laughs> celebrated our uh, 20th anniversary over the weekend. And I told everybody who was with us for the special dinners we did that it was like a 200th anniversary. So it's basically 10 years to one versus seven for dogs. At least that's what they say. There you go. I, I, I have a great affinity for and a love of restaurants and we work hard during harvest and our harvest is going to be starting here in the next few weeks and and sure. they're long hours for you know a concentrated period of time of a few months but restaurant business you guys are running five days a week all out it seems 24 hours a day absolutely you know steve i used i don't know if you know this or not but i used to work in wine production i worked seven years uh, as a seller rat seller master and assistant winemaker and one of my last not, not my last, but my second to last job in the, in the wine industry, I had on my resume still some restaurant experience. And the winemaker said, well, wh- why do you still, you know, in the interview, why do you still have that restaurant job here? And I said, I know a lot of winemakers that could really benefit from having the every night pressure of a restaurant um, because it is every night the doors open, the, the pressure is crushing. There's a bazillion things to do once you really get rolling. And if you can't keep your head and can't keep calm, then you can't stay in the biz. And anybody who stays in it a long time generally can uh, sort of juggle a lot of things and handle pressure. So I, I want to get to your wine experience. You've got a fascinating trajectory to, to your career that I'm really interested in talking to you about. But I just kind of want to start back at the beginning. So where do you come from? Where were you born? Uh, I was born in uh, San Fernando Valley, actually. Uh, I didn't grow up there. I moved away from uh, the San Fernando Valley when I was four, and I grew up in Lake Tahoe. And uh, so, yeah, I grew up in the mountains, grew up skiing, grew up hiking, grew up fishing, all that good stuff, and uh, came to the Bay Area for college. Uh, I went to UC Berkeley, and uh, it was there that I started to get interested in food and wine. So, uh, what, what do your parents do? What do you father? Uh, yeah, yeah. My, my dad's a lawyer. My mom's worked in education as well as, uh, in his law firm at, at one point as well. Um, so yeah, so it was, a, it was a good, um, upbringing, you know, cause to have a professional parent, um, you know, Lake Tahoe's great cause it's a funny economy up there. It's really dependent on tourism. And so people who work in, uh, you know, for the public sector or in uh, the professional world up there, it's really, uh, it really gives you a leg up um, being able to enjoy everything Tahoe has to offer. So your father's a lawyer, you're, you're reading, reading some, doing some research. Uh, you, you get into the math game in college. Yeah. What, what yeah. is all about? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, like anybody in college, you can sort of gravitate to what you're good at. Um, I had zero idea of what I was going to do with myself. Um, like many in that 18 to 22 year frame. And so, yeah, I uh, was really always really good at math through high school, continued in college. So I, I stayed, stayed in mathematics thinking I would get into education. Uh, but in my second year of college, I also started working in a restaurant. I said, the one thing I don't ever want to do is work in a restaurant. Uh, 
I don't know why I had that. Maybe I thought it'd be too hard. Uh, I don't really know, but I said, you know, I'm going to work. Uh, I, I'm going to, you know, I'd worked in labs. I'd done various things, but I couldn't find any other work. And so I ended up working in a restaurant and the rest is history for sure. There you go. So did, when did you know after starting working in, in restaurants and you're, you're working in restaurant while you're going to school? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was working in a restaurant while I was in college. You know, it's funny because part, some things were apparent right away and other things like it took me long, long years to accept that that was going to be where my professional future um, sort of belonged. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with how people who work in restaurants are viewed. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm at UC Berkeley. I'm a good student. I graduated with honors, you know, and so somebody who is a good academic, you know, working in restaurants as a career was, yeah, no, you don't want to do that. That's not proper work. Is, um, seem, is that a frivolous undertaking? In, yeah, in frivolous undertaking. Is that serious right? work. You're not using your, you know, intellect, though. <laughs> I would beg to differ. Um, <laughs> and anyhow, and, you know, certainly a different in a different aspect. And so, you know, I mean, I think you know, we see that across this country that the service trades are not necessarily valued quite as much as certainly in the restaurant world as they might be in Europe, uh, where it is sort of a, a considered profession and has professional training to go along with it. And this is evolving in hospitality here in the U.S. Um, but, you know, it was something that for me, I was doing to earn extra cash. And the first night I walked into a restaurant, did my first night of training, the kind of head servers there were like, well, you're a natural at this. So you just have the natural ability and understanding. And it took a long time for me to sort of take that, apply that, pursue um, that to the highest level um, and find the satisfaction that made me realize that that's really kind of wanted, where I wanted to be. As much as I enjoyed winemaking, that I much prefer being in hospitality. So on a scale of one to 10 for ambition, where do you place yourself? Mm. How important is that quality to you? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's varying degrees of ambition. Um, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't place myself at the high, uh, you know, at, at anything near a nine, eight, nine, or ten, uh, which may sound odd since I'm a master sommelier working in a three-star restaurant. But you know, the the ambition for me is hospitality, right? Taking care of guests, providing a unique experience on a nightly basis, and where I get to work right now means we get to do that at a really, really high level. However, you can do that at all sorts of venues and levels that might not be considered as ambitious as some. So, you know, my ambition is to be in hospitality and to have that contact with guests and that connection. Um, and I think there's a lot of places you can do that. So hospitality to me, this, the whole idea behind Wine Saves Lives as a sort of medium for writing and communicating about wine to be sure. But really, I look at what we do in, in, in the winery at Stephen Kent Winery uh, in Livermore as, as part of the hospitality industry as a whole. You know, we are, our medium for expressing our desire to take care of people is through wine. You just said it, you know, alluded to the fact that part of what the hospitality mission is for you as a restaurateur and, and wine director is about taking care of people. How how did the pandemic change sort of the everyday thought process about what that meant? And where are you now? Uh, where where are you and where are the folks of Manresa in kind of that hospitality journey? Well, I mean, I think the pandemic certainly changed how you look at whatever you're doing, obviously for everybody, uh, no matter the field. Uh, I think for me, 
um, the pandemic just changed how grateful I am to have the venue, you know, um, Manresa is a grouping of people who, you know, all are very different, all work in various different parts of the restaurant and are all committed to like one goal to providing that like ultimate dining experience to really bringing it as high a level as we can. And we push ourselves every night to get better and to change and to evolve. And so for me, the pandemic just made me grateful to be in a place like that with similarly minded people and have the opportunity to do it, which of course, during the pandemic for 15 months, we didn't have that opportunity. Manresa has been, uh, as, a, as a, a restaurant, has had its share of troubles prior to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. A couple of, you know, a couple of fire incidents and the like. So the, yep. some training perhaps for what it might, might seem or what it might feel like when the restaurant shut down because of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the time I've been there that we've shut down twice due to fires um, that actually started after the first fire, I helped reopen the restaurant. Um, so yeah, we've had two fires that have closed the restaurant for extended periods. Um, obviously, um, a couple of economic downturns, uh, particularly the 0809 um, financial meltdown and certainly affect on people's dining out habits, etc. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of resiliency built into it. It's kind of in the DNA. It's certainly in David Kinch's DNA. Um, you know, on his mind of a chef, he talked about it a lot about how he felt differently about the restaurant when he reopened after the first fire. And that's when we, you know, moved from two Michelin stars to three Michelin stars. And, you know, I think there was a much added focus, intensity and dedication for everybody after that event. And certainly after the pandemic, it's been the same thing, you know, just uh, I think everybody who was there before and came back, which was a pretty significant number of people had sort of this, this gratefulness that we were still able to do what we do. So um, just working, working our way kind of through the biography a little bit. So you, you go from, from working uh, as a bus boy uh, at a restaurant while you're in college mm -hmm. and where, where, where's that step into wine at the, fir the first time? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, you asked a little bit about what my parents did. And the one thing about them that I didn't mention is that they were interested in wine. You know, they were wine lovers and collectors starting in the late 70s. Um, and so I had it around for, of course, it was just the boring thing my parents did. I don't want anything to do with it. Uh, but then I was in my first restaurant job and there was a guy there who uh, purchased the wine for the restaurant, one of the servers. And you know, he just made it sound really interesting. And, you know, I was just kind of, I'd hear him talk about things and I still didn't know anything. People would ask me at the table about why I, you know, I moved up from busboy to server. And so, you know, it's like one of these, I have no idea what about anything. So I'm like, all right, maybe I need to learn a little bit more. And so I bought Hugh Johnson's World Atlas of Wine, his first wine book I bought, found it, used at a bookstore. And so I bought that and, uh, you know, just started diving in and realized that this whole culture um, and fascination with uh, grapes and wine, there was more to it. And there's always more to it. Um, and it just sort of drew me in as it does for so many people. What what was that first the first restaurant? Uh, that you're working in what was there any kind of wine focus as far as the wine list was concerned right where where, where kind of place us in sort of in the in the zeitgeist of of wine in california at that point in time from yeah. restaurants, uh, restaurants for sure yeah i mean this was the uh this was the uh, uh late 80s early 90s 89 90 when i started and uh yeah it was a neighborhood restaurant in berkeley it was actually a russian restaurant of all things um 
doesn't exist anymore. I uh, went away a long time ago. And so the, the wine program had some California wines. And then because of the Eastern European theme, it actually had some Eastern European wines on it. Wines from Romania, Bulgaria, okay. uh, nothing from Russia at that time, um, but just had some, some unusual wines, Czechoslovakian. There's wines from what was then Czechoslovakia before the break of that Republic uh, into the Czech Republic, et cetera. So it was a super interesting um, wine list just to have some unusual things, but um, mostly, you know, for me, because, you know, it wasn't like it was such a, you know, it was a one page wine list. Um, and it was, it was, it was had an interesting thought, but it was just mo mostly this idea that there is a place for wine, that wine comes of a place and you just start diving in. And then, you know, from there, I just started researching and look, going to wine stores and looking at everything I could, um, as I moved into other restaurants as, as a server, and then started to think about, you know, what I wanted to do post-college and started thinking about making wine. So what's the classic pairing with borscht? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, probably vodka, to be honest. There you with you. Go. <laughs> um, uh, we had we had it on the list there, but or we had it on the menu, but I don't know what we paired with it. I don't even remember. <laughs> so um, you're you start at this this small neighborhood restaurant. Um, and from from there you you get into actual wine production. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How, how yeah. Does that so I decided that I wanted to, you know, look at working in wine, wine making specifically, obviously being in California. And so kind of looking around thinking about it, I had friends who were starting a vineyard in the Russian River. So I began while working in restaurants going up on my days off to help them, um, you know, clear brush and, you know, get things ready to consider start starting to plant their vineyard. And they introduced me to somebody who was helping them um, with their planting. And so, um, and they introduced me to, to Rod Berglund at Joseph Swan Vineyards. Um, and I worked harvest and I wanted to start working harvest so that I could eventually go to France and work harvest there. And so I did that. I worked for Rod Berglund at Joseph Swan Vineyards in 1995 for harvest then. Um, I hoped to go to France the next year, but didn't quite save enough money. So I worked uh, a little bit with Steve Edmonds at Edmonds St. John okay. uh, in Emeryville. He had his own facility at that time and great guy uh, in the East Bay. Right. And, uh, and then I went, went over to France in 1997 and worked harvest there and uh, had a chance to work in the Rhone and uh, came back and started working full-time in California wineries uh, after that harvest. How did, so how did, that, how did that, uh, that, that voyage from California to the south of France change your, if it did, change your kind of outlook on, on wine? as yeah. as a it not only as a as a beverage but as a cultural artifact and as a historical yeah. marker yeah i mean the biggest part is is as you allude to there like the different place that wine has in the culture uh in france like you know i'd worked at some really nice and very small wineries if you think about where i'd been in california i mean joseph swan and edmund st john are extremely tiny in the world of california wine as not not as far as they're not known uh, how renowned they are but as far as their production level, you know, they're not the normal California winery size, as you know, um, particularly then, right? There's a lot more artisanal wine in California now than there was then. Anyhow, but the main thing that I, when I went there is like, I, you know, I lived with a family who had vineyards and made wine and they literally made wine outside of their house. They had a small facility, you know, that was just an adjunct building to their home and that the barrel cellar was under the house. Um, so you realize, like, especially in some of these areas that are outside of Bordeaux and Champagne, um, how small the domains are, 
at how connected the growing of grapes, the making of wine are to their family uh, lives, and as well as the connection of growing the grapes and making the wine from their grapes. Much, much more very small scale winemaking there that also is owning and maintaining and working in their vineyards. This is something you just don't see uh, here uh, in the same way. So it was a profound difference um, and really affected kind of how I felt about the expression of individual wines in places. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, one of the reasons uh, having spent time that I still continue to love French wine so much. What an amazing opportunity. I, you know, yeah. it, 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 you know, we're, we're a very small operation here. We yeah. don't live on the property at this point in time. So, you know, there, there is some remove. And in most places in California, there is a, there is a distance between where the grapes are, where the winery facility is, where your crops might be, your animals might be, if, the, if that's, you know, even a possibility in certain parts of California. And there seems to me that it, while it may be more prosaic on a day-to-day -day basis for those families in Europe, because they've been doing that for generation after generation after generation, there's a tie to the dirt that is so much deeper, it seems to me, there. Yeah. even if not acknowledged necessarily in a romantic way as I tend to do it. But there, there's something that, that just cuts right to the heart of me when, when I think about that kind of uh, sort of marriage of, of, of philosophy, place, activity, seasonality that, that is, is stun, stuns me to this day. Yeah, I mean, it's really different. There's no question about it. Um, you know, you can, you can see it, you can feel it. Um, I mean, you just look at the language, you know, in in the French language, there's no word for winemaker, right? right. Because right. that position historically was like there wasn't a you know a job like that. Right. Um, right. There's a French word called vigneron, um, and there is no word for that in English, right? Wine grower, basically. Right. Right. Um, so I mean that tells it all right there. You know the language itself really expresses it. I mean you have in France the chef de cave, the person who directs the winery, um, particularly in Bordeaux, um, and also in Champagne as well. Um, and, you know, the larger wineries in Burgundy and the Rhone, you'll see, you'll see that position for sure. But, you know, there's a reason it's not baked into the language, um, because, you know, where it came from, from small peasant, peasant farmers, you know, uh, it, was, it wasn't a thing. Uh, and the evolution has been very, very long and, and very slow. Winemaking in California, in any real modern sense, could be traced maybe to the 70s in Napa. But if you even go back to kind of the origin of California winemaking, my family started in the 1850s. It really wasn't much before then that winemaking was a commercial enterprise in California, compared to you know a thousand plus years in France and in most of of Europe. There, there's a lot left for us to learn. That's for that's for darn sure. Oh, yeah. with land relationship with the right kind of variety planted in the right place mm -hmm. uh a, a lot left uh, that we can certainly model ourselves after or emulate from our well and also cousin. too it's it, it doesn't even have to necessarily model itself on but take inspiration from but then it, the thing about obviously as we've seen the history of california wine is so dynamic you know there's such a vitality and energy i mean you look at how many different kinds of wine are being made now different grape varieties, different techniques. Um, I mean, it's like, there's just always an explosive movement into everything in California. Right. Of course, right. that is the benefit of being here versus being in a traditional uh, area uh, bound by centuries and centuries of history. Um, right. You know, there's a lot of dynamism uh, in younger, in the younger generations in, in Europe as well, but you know, California uh, and the new, and the United States in general, the new world in general brings <laughs> a very rapid pace uh, of exploration and change, which is cool. 
Absolutely. I mean, it, what, so the thing, one of the things that seems um, sort of au courant right now in, in France and in, in other parts of Europe is the natural wine movement. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, which seems at once uh, new, but touches on those kinds of relationships with with land and the environment that go back to the very beginning of our relationship as, as human beings with our environment. What do you, how do you, how do you view how do you view that movement? How do you like those wines in a general way? Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's a, it's it's a very popular and explosive um, part of the wine world right now, um, in terms of how popular it is, particularly in certain parts um, of Europe. You know, uh, Scandinavia, uh, Paris, uh, all over France, Italy too. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it's it's both new and not all that new. It does tie into you know old and very traditional ideas about you know um, respecting the land, about allowing you know the land without interference with minimal interference to express what it will in wine. Um, and, you know, I think having started to see these wines start to be made and, and drunk in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, coming just from a perspective of people who are making artisanal wine and realizing that in order to make the best wine in, in a hands-off way in the winery, the purity and importance and quality of the grapes was paramount and all of the important work was going to be done in the vineyard um, that that kind of led to an idea of well if that's the case then doing less is more doing things with no chemicals is better doing winemaking with no additives is going to be better um, and that's sort of where you know what pushed us to where we are now in terms of the natural wine movement which I'm definitely not an expert on, uh, but I have a huge admiration for those wines, especially when they're good. I mean, the main thing for me is I always want wines to be um, expressive of where they come from, uh, not overly expressive of winemaking techniques. So whether it's a really industrial, boring kind of commercial wine made to, you know, please a LCD lowest common denominator palate, mm -hmm. or where it's a wine that shows lots of, you know, very bad winemaking um, with a lot of flaws in a natural wine camp, neither one of those is interesting to me, um, right. you know, because they don't express anything unique or interesting. Um, they express winemaking. So when you have a natural wine that is, um, that I can put in a glass for you, a trained winemaker, and you say, wow, that's really good. That's what I love. You know, I love those wines. They're, they're some of the most transcendent wines you'll have, um, but it isn't all of them. So for me, the category, it doesn't, it, it has a, a, there's a real, you know, easy way to understand it, but it doesn't always lead me to understand whether I'm going to like the wine or not. So what, what is terroir? I, 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 you know, I, I've talked to a lot of people, a trained winemaker, uh, read a lot, still don't have an adequate definition for that word. And is <laughs> Brett part of terroir? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think terroir is just the expressiveness of a place, you know, um, I'm not going to be able to blind taste a wine and tell you what terroir it came from. But, uh, you know, there, you know, is a certain expressiveness that each individual spot will have. And, you know, obviously, you see that the best in Burgundy, where you see the same producer making wines from plots right next to each other, and they're not similar. <laughs> and the differences are consistent from one year to the next. Uh, is bread a part of terroir? No, definitely not. I mean, um, bread is, uh, not a negative necessarily for me, um, but it's, you know, it is not necessarily part of terroir. I mean, 
you know, obviously tasting Rhone wines from the 70s, 80s, you know, almost all of them have a, an amount of Brett to them and they can be enjoyable. It's not inherent to the place, it's inherent to the sellers <laughs> and right. uh, perhaps the winemaking at the time. Um, but, you know, uh, particularly as a trained winemaker, you'll know Brett's pretty highly demonized in the, in the wine world uh, for, for technically trained winemakers. Um, and, um, you know, I think what some scientists are looking at and seeing in the expressiveness of Britannomyces and the amount of volatile characters that are produced um, that are both pleasant and unpleasant, and that it doesn't only make extremely unpleasant ones. I mean, you know, if you're going to taste with a group of winemakers, every time there's Bretton wine, they're going to say it smells like poopy diapers. Right. Well, I mean, actually, that's not really true. Right. Sometimes it does. And I've smelled those wines. And yeah, that's terrible. Um, <laughs> however, you know, when you see the expressions of botanomyces that are spicy and leathery and whatnot, like any freaking Bordeaux from 70s, 80s and 90s, right. um, they all have breadth at varying levels. And it's less expressive in the best vintages, but it's still typically there. Uh, it's being cleaned out of the cellars in Bordeaux, but it isn't always bad you know, and, Indeed. and that's the thing that, uh, at least, at least to me, and I understand that it's in the bottle. So it's a living thing. So who right. knows what it will do. Yeah, I'm not a winemaker. So I'll sleep at night. I realize that not all winemakers will, if it's in their wine and I don't want anybody to, you know, put it there or allow it to be there if they're not comfortable with it. But, uh, you know, I think the, the discussion of bread is always a little bit more nuanced, but it's definitely not part of terroir. I, to I, I totally agree with the nuance aspect of your answer. I, there, we, you know, in, in the Livermore Valley, we work with 30 wineries, let's say, that are active. And, mm -hmm. and most of the folks who are working the wineries are not technically trained. There are, there are right. uh, the younger group moving in has, has had education at Davis or, or Cal Poly or Fresno State or what have you. Sure. And bring, bring a lot of um, really good um, tools to bear on what it is they're doing and i'm not going to get in any kind of discussion or argument about whether you know going to going to uh uc davis kind of robs a, a, a nascent winemaker of of the desire to experiment and all this kind of stuff um but most california winemakers i know that i that i hang around with bread is a bread is a four or five letter word <laughs> for sure and, you know the inability to control it in any real way is problematic but yeah. there you know i i think one of the fundamental things that wine should be is interesting and delicious and and the the uh you know, brett can certainly add some some complexing agents to a wine uh if it's in balance with with other characteristics yeah. I mean, you know, I, I totally get all the technical reasons why you don't want it. You know, right. I, mean, I, you know, I mean, I've been, you know, I don't make wine anymore, but it wasn't that long ago um, and didn't necessarily want it in the wine either. You know, right. however, right. I think we just have to attend to what's in the glass. Right. I mean, you know, 1982 Bordeaux is still delicious. It's right. really great. Those right. wines are amazing, you know, and there's not too many of them that don't have bread. Right. So what's going on? Well, I don't know. I can't explain it to you. I don't know why that bread is good. I know that at, at a unified symposium um, at a seminar on Brett, I didn't actually attend it, but I was told, told about it. And they had two wines. They had Pichon Comtesse de Lalande in the glass, mm -hmm. and they had a doctored wine um, that both had same, the same amount of 4-ethylphenol. One was added to the doctored wine, and the other was measured in the Pichon Lalande. And the doctored one was awful, you know? <laughs> it smelled like your proverbial poopy diaper stable. Right. And wow. the Pichon Lalande, for a lot of people who are tasting it there, mostly technically trained, mm -hmm. were like, wow, okay, well, this isn't 
so bad? You know, why do these have the same amount of the, con- and this was a while ago, right? The, right. The, you know, the understand, it was just one single measurement. Right. Um, and it was just interesting that like, okay, well, this actual wine that has this amount of Brett that we can measure by what it has produced chemically in the wine, it tastes pretty good. And the one that we added that a much of that amount of compound to another wine was terrible. So there's a there's a complex indeed and 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 there's a trope that that helps me that's sort of kind of an organizing principle for a lot of what i think about and write about and the like and wine like hamlet is bottomless great wine you know every time you dive into a bottle of 1982 you know bordeaux or or what have you um you're learning something new especially as the wine ages and the only constant in wine is its change and and its Mm -hmm. ability um there are, you know, there are many strains of Brett and, 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 you know, the exact combination of these strains and how much of this, how much of that can affect things dramatically, obviously. And, and it's that, that kind of mystery and, and, uh, and, and mutability and change is, is a lot of what drives me as a winemaker and as a person who loves wine and loves kind of the sensory exploration of the world and of life. Uh, It's, um, I don't want it gone for sure. That's, 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 uh, that's for sure. Uh, yeah. So uh, you are working in a variety of wineries, um, Rochambeau, mm-hmm. Joseph Swan. You mentioned. So you go from you go from restaurant to winery. You're in the set. You end up in the sales end of wine for a while as well, mm-hmm. yep. which marks you as a masochist. Perhaps I'm not sure. Yep. The yep. toughest part of the wine business is the sale. Oh, by far, as you know. <laughs> Indeed. So how, how it never that... gets any easier. No, oh. it doesn't. No, even for wineries that, you know, are getting all these great scores and people know who they are. It's everybody complains about distributors. Everybody yeah. complains about, you know, whatever. But um, so you do that for a couple of years with Swirl Wine Broker, which is a really great broker, small yeah. broker, with a great book, even still. How did that come about? And why? Well, yeah, so I mean, I was uh, I was working in restaurants. I was uh, working at Cyrus up in Healdsburg, the original Cyrus. They're about mm-hmm. to reopen um, in a new location, and um, you know, I, I I got married right when we started, and you know, after um, you know, always being being married, working nights and working uh, weekends and every holiday and all the usual right. restaurant stuff, um, we were ready to try and uh, you know see about you know, not being unavailable for every weekend and holiday. So I was looking at, um, you know, both moving away from Sonoma County and also moving into a, a new career. Um, so that's that's how moving into sales came about. Um, it was something I wanted to explore. And the owners of Swirl, you know, I was a client of theirs and bought a good amount of their wines, so was a big fan. And uh, more importantly, I was a big fan of the people of, uh, of Lawrence Boone and Sarah Floyd, the owners uh, of Swirl amazing people. And I've known Sarah for longer than either one of us wants to admit. Um, but yeah, so that was how it was just, a, it was a personal connection. And I was moving down to the Santa Cruz, Monterey, Carmel area, and they wanted to make a move and, and do something different in that area. And so they, uh, you know, offered to create a position for me. So yeah, awesome people. Great book. Then it's always evolved. It's always changed. It's different now than it was when I was uh, working with them. It was a great experience. You know, it certainly gave me a huge appreciation for how difficult sales are. It's a personality type, I think, to really want to be in sales, to succeed, to have that level of organization and drive to close the deal. Um, You know, my interest was always in the wines and their stories and what made each one different from each other and from maybe some other things in the market. And that was, that was great, but it meant it was more interesting to be, uh, you know, back in the hospitality side than uh, in sales. You know, you find out 
which areas of the wine world work for you. And there's different places for everyone. And uh, for me, you know, I left actually sales to go back into winemaking for a year and, you know, really kind of felt the pull of hospitality. And right. that's where I came back to doing what I do, you know, for the last now 10 years. Right, right. So you uh, were you at Fogarty after you left Swirl? Exactly. That's yeah. where you went to. Great, yeah. great people. Were, uh, uh, who were you working with at Fogarty when you were there? Yeah, both Michael Martella, who's still the head winemaker, and then Nathan Candler was, uh, I think he was probably still the assistant winemaker at that time. I think he became the associate winemaker. You know, he was always going to take over when Michael retired, which he has now. Now Nathan's uh, running the winery. I mean, they're both really great guys. Michael, great, the great winemakers. Yeah. 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 And then Tommy, you know, is, is he's awesome. He's really good people. Um, that's a good team at Fogarty and you know, the wines are just getting better and better and people are starting to realize it a little more and more. So, right. so you have, you have a lot of experience with, with working with fruit from the Santa Cruz mountains and, and the Manresa wine list has always, at least under your kind of authorship has, has always had a, a firm, uh, uh, connection to the Santa Cruz mountains and, and, do you hold that region as in as high esteem as I do as far as Cabernet is concerned? Pinot, obviously, Chardonnay, obviously, but with Ridge yeah. and Mount Eden, these yeah. I think about you know the 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 hegemony of Napa Valley and and the attention that's brought to bear on on that area, rightfully Absolutely. so in a lot of cases. Absolutely, but it sure seems to me, especially with older wines, uh, older cabs, the Santa Cruz Mountains just offers an incredible amount of interest and and authenticity to it that I don't find in other areas. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, we, we, you know, we definitely feature Santa Cruz uh, mountains wines um, heavily. And, uh, you know, it's good that you mentioned all three varieties that uh, have historically performed extremely well. It's not that many regions that will make you know, world-class Cabernet Sauvignon, world-class Chardonnay, and world-class Pinot Noir all in the same area. Right. Um, you know, as to which is the best, or, you know, it probably depends on your personal taste. I mean, you know, gravitating to Cabernet is, is easy and sensible in a way because of Montebello and Ridge, and then Mount Eden, one ridge over, also with amazing Cabernets going back. And then you go back further, you know, to, you know, Rixford and things like that. You've got a long history of really great Cabernet, Peter Martin Ray as well, um, and, and Martin Ray. You know, there's a lot of really, really interesting uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. So they are very distinctive wines. You know, most of the time you're talking about areas where Cabernet barely ripens, you know, ripens very late. Um, it's not getting picked in August generally, though. <laughs> that changes uh more and more. more yeah right. absolutely yep. so you know it's it's a great area for Cabernet Sauvignon for sure I mean it's it's an unusual growing area because you know the the vineyards are scattered all over the place um you know it's not a monolithic wine region by any stretch of the imagination and you know when people come to visit Monresa they don't come because they feel like they're visiting wine country right. you know, it, it we are in Silicon Valley you know it is um you know at right at the base of the Santa Cruz mountains um but it's not like a restaurant in Sonoma Napa or down in the Santa Maria Valley or something like that you know it's like people are not coming to us because they're visiting wine country generally speaking so it is an interesting dynamic in that sense but we do have plenty of world-class wines around us have you, do you know Bates Ranch? Have you ever been up to the I actual? I've never site? been up there. Actually, I've been, I've been by there. I've never toured it, but I've, I've certainly driven all over the mountains and explored it. And then, yeah, I've, you know, had wine, plenty of great wines from Bates Ranch. 
we, uh, in 2020, fortunately enough for us, we were able to get, that was our first finish of getting fruit from base ranch. Nice. A little bit of Cab Franc, a little bit of Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, and that was the year that the fires from Napa and coming up north from Santa Cruz just really decimated everything in Livermore. Practically yeah. Livermore for us. Um, but the Bates Ranch, I, I, I wrote about it in my book. There's a chapter on Bates Ranch. And just the, the feeling there is it, it is a, uh, it's a time machine. You know, it, it's in some places you go and you see, so Livermore may be a little bit like this, where you get to a point in Livermore, the bucolic kind of vineyards off of the freeway, uh, and, and you've got, you're, you're, as you come out of the vineyard, you're, you're sort of progressing through time to modernity as you're at the freeway and new restaurants, new buildings, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Bates Ranch is this place where you kind of start in, you start with Marshall Dillon, it seems, and you go further back you know, to, to the to the Pleistocene age when these mountains were being formed. Mm. It's, it's such an amazing venue um, mm. that that um, and produces fruit that tastes exactly like the place smells, which, mm -hmm. is, which is really exciting. That is awesome. Yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. So you have you ever worked in a restaurant that wasn't world class? Oh, for sure. Your yeah. your uh, CV as far as restaurants go is pretty pretty darn impressive with Cyrus and Manresa now. Yeah. Um, so the the drive for you, uh, you you're you're in the restaurant business for quite a while, kind of off and on. You're yep. making sales, restaurant kind of back and forth. It's in 2013 that your so you started at Manresa in 13 or 14. 14, yeah. 14 and you have started the the ms program uh the yeah. the court of master sommelier program just about the same time that you're you're there mm -hmm. and you get your you pass your your advanced and, and get your your ms in 2016 was that a foregone conclusion for you that it that you were going to progress in that way maybe maybe you maybe you pass the final test or maybe you don't but was your was your ambition that word again to do that and, and when did you know that you wanted to pursue that kind of study? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, the MS program is very particular, you know, um, and um, it's it's a, something that you really kind of should only come to when you're really kind of ready for it. Um, it isn't it isn't for everyone, and it isn't necessary for anyone um, if you want to pursue a career in hospitality. Um, it, it really makes you better. You have to push yourself to get through it. But, um, you know, I started when I was at Cyrus, you know, I just, I, I was, I didn't, I didn't have an interest in, in the MS program or the title. Uh, and I, I never actually had a huge interest in the title. I've mostly had an interest in the process, um, in working to get it. And so when I came back, you know, the, the process of, you know, like working and finding the, the, you know, positions after I came out of wineries and went back into hospitality, um, you know, it's tricky, right? Um, you know, cause I'd been, you know, kind of moving in and out of jobs and I always had reasons for where I, why, where I was going and what I wanted to be doing. Uh, but then, you know, when you're somebody who's in your forties and you're looking for work in, uh, restaurants and hospitality, it's not so easy, um, because people generally are only looking at younger people. Yeah. Um, so it was a bit challenging and I had a lot of people like, oh, well, what, where are you in the MS program? I'm like, I don't do that. I mean, I've, I've run wine programs for, you know, Michelin one-star restaurants, Michelin two-star restaurants, places that were, you know, James Beard nominated, James Beard right. award winners, you know, I mean, MS thing's great. Uh, but it was interesting, you know, because that was, that was about a time where the 
kind of perception of that program was really, really rising. And so I was, um, you know, looking, I was working in a, in a position where I had a little more time than I did at someplace like Cyrus or Manresa. And I wanted to have more of a challenge. And I'd been around the MS program quite a bit. I'd gone through the first two steps. I'd been in a tasting group with somebody who went, went on to become a master sommelier. It was a great, great taster. And tasted with him after he passed. And he was just like, you know, I, I could taste pretty well. Um, I wasn't like so into it, but I'd passed, you know, the first two steps. And he was like, well, you know, passed a couple of flights that he was putting together for master sommelier candidates. And I, you know, did what he said would be a pass. He's like, well, why don't you, why aren't you taking this exam? You know, it's like, you can pass this. You just passed this flight. You just passed the one last week. It's like, what, why aren't you doing it? And I was like, ah, just, I don't really want to. You know, I like work in service. I like working the floor. I don't want to study trivia. I don't care about blind tasting. And then I decided at one point, I just really wanted a challenge. I wanted to push myself. And I'd had enough exposure to that program that I, I realized it was something I really wanted to do because I did want to study something besides all the things I was the most interested in. Right. I did want to really look at knowing more about the stories and places uh, of the world that I didn't know much about. Uh, because I didn't work with their wines or wasn't as interested in them or whatever. So that was the thing. It's like, you know, I just really want to kind of dive in deeper to everything involving hospitality, wine and beverage service. Um, and so that was the push. And so then took the advanced exam, you know, and I, you know, studied for the advanced exam, always with the intention of taking and passing the master sommelier exam. But then like most people, you get through that into that master sommelier exam. And I passed the theory and service portions the first time I took them and then the tasting was trickier and you know especially after I fell on my face the second time I took the tasting I was like hmm uh, you know I think I can do this right but maybe I can't you know so you have to be okay with like when you're sitting that exam with like it's just not happening because you see I mean you know when I passed uh, in 2016 there were people who I figured were you know better blind tasters knew more about theory and maybe were better at service or it was at least as good and they didn't pass and some of them still haven't and maybe some just stopped taking it so it's like you realize like there's a bit of randomness there's a bit of luck but there's always perseverance and you know obviously having the inherent ability um you know to to, to get through to the end um so yeah in the end i was able to get through it but it was it was definitely i mean people ask me how long from when you took your intro to passing the advanced or master exam i was like well <laughs> don't look at it that way because i yeah. had eight years in the middle where i wasn't at all engaged with that program right. so right so um where is the value in the program for the guests mm, well i think anybody anybody who gets all the way through the program well first and foremost obviously you're elevating your knowledge you know you're challenging your service skills in some scenarios um you're understanding what classic wines taste like, whether you choose to offer those or not, doesn't matter, but at least you, you have a grounding in it, right? Um, but the, the benefit to the guest, right, is nobody gets all the way through the program, gets through the MS without a certain degree of humility. You, you are humbled in that exam. And you, if you're full of yourself, by the end of it, there's gonna be a part of you that's admitting, eh, I'm really not all that great. Uh, I made it. You know, but you have to swallow some of your ego and dignity to get through, you know, and that in the end is what anybody who comes out with an MS pin is, has at the core of their service is that humility to serve, right? You know, that, right. you know, I'm not here for myself. I'm not here to tell you about me. I'm here for you. 
Uh, and that is something that particularly of all the master sommeliers that continue to work in hospitality, they all show, right? Because you have been humbled to get through the program because right. with, with 16 exceptions, nobody, maybe 17, uh, nobody passes it the first time they take it. Right. Right. The, so I, I want to I want to kind of get back into that in a second, but I, I, I want to ask you a little bit. So, you know, for those who are in into wine, uh, into food, the song movies uh, mm -hmm. that have come out over the last several years and, and sure. song TV and a lot of the great work that these folks have been doing yeah. have have like, uh, you know, maybe ever since Julia Child, you know, back in the 60s, um, have have created a little bit of a cold of personality for mm -hmm. restaurateurs, for winemakers, for for sommeliers, you know, people who have who have traditionally kind of labored in the background and, mm -hmm. um, you know, who are there to pro provide service and to create a good experience for the guests and the like. Um, people become more popular. They start getting, you know, shots on these little TV shows that Som TV does and the like. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, I've read enough of, of the horror stories about the restaurant business, never really being in it myself to, to you know, understand, and we talked about this earlier, how difficult an environment it is to work in, just physically and mentally and the grind and the like. Um, how much of those do you think those kind of factors were um, part of what happened when, in the court over the last couple of years? You know, the scandals, the, the, the mm -hmm. sort of, you know, um, um, sexual harassment issues, the cheating issues that that the court has suffered through for the last couple of mm -hmm. years, is is there something endemic in the restaurant business itself that that had that led in part to these things happening, or is it just a one off kind of bad bad apples? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, um, I think there's a lot of answers to that. I mean, first off, I wouldn't say uh, you know I always hesitate to call it a, a cheating issue because I, I would I would remind anybody who's listening that the people who were affected by that they were not cheating. Right. Um, the some of the wines were um, given to them without asking. Um, and that, that's different. Um, it did mean the exam was compromised and had to be invalidated, which is tragic and continues to be for the people affected by it. And some who, many who have not continued with the program, understandably so. Um, and the sexual harassment issues for me are worse because that is obviously people abusing their power and their position. Um, and I think, you know, I think you look at the cult of personalities you mentioned that has kind of been created around the profession by, you know, both the song, the song movies, but also, you know, magazines, food and wine trade, focusing on the sommelier, the star sommelier, the young sommelier, this and that, um, that there has led to be a really a false impression of importance with the position. And, and uh, a lot of people who have come into it and existed in the sphere who have an exaggerated sense of their own importance. Um, remember people who pass the master sommelier exam passed test. Right. It's a hard test. Right. It's great to have passed it, right. but it's a test, right? right. Um, and people who have achieved great things in the food and wine world um, with James Beard Awards and this and that, you know, that's all great, right? But, you know, there is also a responsibility and it comes back to the humility aspect of like, you know, what are you going to do with that position that people are putting you in this place that is elevated in terms of public perception uh, and maybe maybe merited, but maybe you can question just how meritorious it is. It is a test that you passed. Um, and I think 
there was a really, you know, an excess of star power placed uh, on people who, you know, pass the MS exam or are important sommeliers or important uh, food and wine people in the world, important chefs. Uh, the Me Too thing doesn't affect just um, people who are in the court of master sommeliers and perhaps chose to, you know, use their influence and their um, the disparity of where they were versus people who were candidates and 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 took advantage of that. You know, um, certainly we've seen in the food and wine world and restaurant world as well. It is it is pervasive, right? And so, you know, it's it's I don't think it's just a CMS problem. It's a it's an industry problem and it's sure. also a, a, a cultural problem too. No so and he, I've, I, you know, I've, I saw some of your Instagram posts that were very uh, supportive of those folks who had been victimized, and and it's a horrible situation for yeah. everybody involved in, and and certainly sure. not like it, as you mentioned, certainly not um, limited to any one specific category of of place yeah. or prof profession or what have you. Yeah. One thing that interests me, and and again, if you'd watch those, I'm sure you watch those movies, and I, I've seen them and watched them with other folks, young, younger winemakers and the like. Um, why do so many of these folks leave the service part of the business? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great question, right? I mean, you look at, um, um, well, let's look at the movie, for example, uh, some movie, every one of them's out of the service industry, right? right? All of them. I mean, Dustin's, uh, you know, has a retail, retail chain, retail group now, awesome stores, Verve Wine, uh, right. but everybody else is out of the service industry. You know, and you look at the, you know, 200 let's see look at the 176 or eight or whatever it is american people of mass semester something is very few of them still work in service and why because it's hard you know because working in service is hard you know um it's not that people can't do hard things but you know i mean giving up all of your weekends all of your nights you know if you get married and you have kids i have an eight-year-old you know it's it takes a pretty special situation to be able to continue to work nights and weekends uh with a partner um and a child who will you know be understanding and go along with that and balance that uh it's really really difficult so that's why you know um you know financing and finance is another piece there's a lot of money in other parts of the wine business particularly in distribution and sales so you know people who get to a prominent place where their name has some recognition i.e ms after that that you know it has historically uh led to you know the opportunities for roles in sales and distribution that uh, are lucrative and uh, offer a really good work-life balance uh, and, you know, pretty obviously a much better one than working in a restaurant. So, right. uh, you know, so I think there's, there's a lot of good reasons. And, you know, remember, it's not just people who, you know, become master sommeliers or prominent wine and wine and food professionals that leave restaurants. People leave sure. restaurants a lot sure. um, because, because of what we're, what we're talking about. Here. Indeed. Indeed. I, so uh, you get to, to Manresa in 2014. Yeah. How did you, how did you meet David? How did, how did, uh, how did that come about? Yeah, I met David because um, when I was working at Cyrus, um, we were both in the first Michelin Guide in California. Um, we both were um, debuted at two stars. Uh, Cyrus was brand new then and Manresa was a few years old then, um, but you know, kind of had flown a little bit under the radar. Um, and um, you know, certainly Michael Bauer in the Chronicle had taken note of Manresa before that, but, uh, you know, being that we were both in the guide at the same time, you know, you really like, oh, wow, I want to go check out that spot. Wow. Um, and it was very far away from Healdsburg. So uh, I got to know David because I came in as a guest and, uh, you know, dined there and was just 
absolutely blown away by the food. I've just, I never had anything like it. Um, you know, all my trips to France, I was poor. And so I didn't dine in very many fancy right. restaurants, right. Um, you know, and so, you know, being able to go and have an experience and have food like that. I mean, I'd been to the French laundry with a similar, similar feeling like, wow, this is amazing. But David's food was so different. Um, the quality was incredible, but also the personality was like, whoa, what is going on here? So I'd always had a really high, um, kind of a view of the cuisine there. And so, yeah, so I just met him, met him then and, uh, you know, kept in touch a bit when I moved to uh, Carmel and then Santa Cruz. Gotcha. And uh, yeah, so when um, uh, the previous wine director um, during the first fire, uh, closure for the first fire decided to, to move on, uh, David called me and we started talking. That's how I helped reopen the restaurant in 2014 after um, the first fire. So what's the, describe briefly, what, what's the, what's the, how does the collaborative relationship between the kitchen and the and the beverage team work? How does that get, get David's got a dish, she's thinking about things and, and where do you come in in the process? Yeah. So like most restaurants like this, um, the wine person comes in when the chef's like, here's the dish, figure it out. Um, right. So, right. you know, it is it is a, you know, a, a, a situation where uh, like most places like that, the chef has their inspiration and what they're working on, and then they put it all together. And it's like, okay, here it is. So what we do is, you know, I get the description of the dish. I'm always kind of, you know, inquiring about when's the menu going to change? What's the new dish going to be? What are the flavors? You know, what are you thinking? And so I can sort of have my gears turning about what I might want to pour with it as far as the pairing. And then when it actually comes, boom, the dish is put up. We're bringing a few glasses and, uh, you know, I'm tasting it. Uh, there's some at the restaurant's tasting it. The general manager's tasting it and David's tasting it. We're all kind of checking it out and seeing what we think of the pairing. Um, now that, you know, I've been there for uh, closing in on eight years, usually I'll have an idea, you know, of what's going to work. Um, David doesn't repeat dishes, so we don't do right. anything over again, generally right. speaking. Right. And so it's just an evolution of previous dishes, but usually there's enough of a connection to the past that it's like, ah, eh, this worked before, let's try it again. We'll start there and then boom, you know, but food like that's not one plus one equals two, you know, it's one plus one equals six sometimes. So right. You have to, you're not necessarily going to be able to make a pairing based on theory. You got to taste something with it. And sometimes the things that I think will work are terrible. I mean, like literally like, oh my God, that's awful. I don't know why it's, but it's awful. Um, so we taste other things, you know, and it's like, you're looking at what structure, what's working. Is it, is it the oak that's making it work? The lack of oak, um, the acidity, you know, uh, the flavors in the wine. I mean, it's just all sorts of things. Sometimes it can be like, I have no idea, but it's not working. So let's Do you have a general kind of philosophy? Is it, are, are you looking at complementary flavors and structure between the dish and wine or contrasting, or mm -hmm. is it just sort of, your your mind is in a ferment about potential matches just as david's is about how you know you know the the base ingredients how, how do you more specifically to you how are you approaching that process mm -hmm. yeah well i'm first looking always for complementary flavors like is there a thread through the dish you know that is there like you know if you're looking at something like well you've got cauliflower and onion and you know white things you know, is it something that like burgundy or Chardonnay is going to be working with? Um, because those those slightly earthy kind of volatile sulfur things that were kept anything right. like really reductive white burgundy can really kind of crush with those flavors and blow up when you have similar flavors together. Contrasting comes into play too. It just sort of depends on on the individual dish. But I always start like looking for 
specific flavor linkages between the dish and the wine. That's usually going to create the most strong connection uh, between the glass and the plate. Um, and then considering structural issues, acidity, body weight, you know, um, alongside that, after that. Does wine ever lead the process? Is David ever making a dish for a specific wine? Never. Gotcha. <laughs> We're all going to put the chef owner, I suppose. <laughs> it depends on the chef, you know, everyone looks different, but most of them will come from the food is first place. You, know, gotcha. that, that, you don't get to be a chef who has three Michelin stars, who's telling every single person who walks in the door, this is what you're going to eat, right? Uh, it's telling every single person in the restaurant, this is how it's going to be served. I mean, not in so many words, but you know, sure. this is what we offer. This is what we do. This is the food, right? I mean, and that, that I mean, that is like universal across the show. You know, they're convincing an entire team to make the dish the way they want it, right? to serve the dish they want it, and then also convincing the client to spend the money on it right. the way that they want it, right? So that personality is gonna have a pretty forceful direction on what is going on on the plate. And yeah, I mean, if something's terrible with the wine or doesn't work with wine at all, you know, I mean, I might say something, but I never have to. This is David Kinch, right? David, David knows wine. David knows more about wine than any chef I've ever worked with before. He's worked harvest in multiple continents, just like I have. He's worked in France. He's worked in California. Um, you know, he, he's a huge wine lover. And so he understands, I mean, he, he trained in France. So, wow. you know, you internalize wine and food matching there, even if you're not thinking about what wine's going, because you're inherently making food that is wine friendly, right? right. I mean, that's the thing. So, and then if you're going to work a lot with umami and savory things as well, well, that's also something that's really, really wine friendly too. And in fact, that enhanced savoriness um, that you might see in a lot of our dishes, like it almost requires wine, right? And that's more of a contrast thing. You're not matching it, but you really need the, the power of acidity, right? And the flavors of wine with really umami laden foods at times to really help sort of, re, you know, cleanse, clear the palate of the intense savoriness. No question. I mean, for me, that that's that's the most important element, you know, from from an enjoyment standpoint, from a structural standpoint, and maybe even from an aging standpoint is is abundant acidity in balance yeah. with other elements. But so let me there are, you know, thousands of restaurants all over the world, all over the country, all over the Bay Area, all different kinds of 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 cuisine, all different levels of ambition, desire to serve people and that sort of thing. Um, the mom and pop pasta place around the corner is obviously a very different dining experience, um, as well as a, as a, um, a, a very different environment. It seems to me in terms of, um, how important the performative part of the business is, um, what, what is there, is there a performative element to, to working at Manresa or three or Michelin starred restaurants that is, um, as important as, or, or it is something that's acknowledged and something that is played to as a strength, uh, uh, at Manresa. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think restaurants will vary in how important the performative aspect is. Um, but I mean, it's all there, you know, and so it's very important to the experience. Cause you know, we were always looking at things through the eyes of the guest, right? So, you know, when the plate is delivered, the visual impact of the food, it's plating, any garnishes, the plate itself, right? What is done to the plate? Okay, well, I mean, we're not a 
table, a restaurant that will come and carve um, a duck table side or a, a pigeon or a squab, which you might see in France historically. You don't see it too much anymore, unfortunately. Right? <laughs> but you know that performative aspect is part of the experience for us. You know, we do a lot of, you know, bringing sauces table side and, you know, either pouring or spooning them over a dish, things like that. We don't have our cheese cart anymore because we don't have enough staff to do it, but that's certainly a performative um, uh, display and service of cheese. Um, you know, if you have any sort of beverage carts, which we don't, but, you know, I've worked with them in the past. That's another really performative, enhancing experience. And every restaurant's going to kind of have a different feel about it. I mean, no matter what, every restaurant has something performative about it. You know, even the most bare bones stripped down spot, you know, there is an ambiance, there is a feel to it. And you'll either, you know, gravitate to it or find it appropriate for your expectation for that dining experience or not. Le levels of expectation uh, vary from 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 person to person, right? Everybody expects we have people coming to our tasting room who have an expectation for a selection of wines, perhaps that is different than what we're actually offering. And sometimes folks sure. get here and they're disappointed with the fact that we don't have more white wine or or we don't have Napa Valley Cab also or whatever the case may be. And dealing with expectations is awfully difficult, especially when you don't know what they are ahead of time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a, there's millions of words, it seems, have been written about and, and rightfully so, because I, I, I've been lucky enough to, to dine at Manresa a few times, not as often as I'd like to, but have always had an amazing experience. Have always had a, always felt as if I have been taken care of, and that you know that that I, I am the I am the the sort of spotlight for the guest is on me when I'm there, which is a tribute to you and to your teammates and David and the and the the whole concept of uh, of what you're trying to accomplish. Um, what is what is the are there? I'll ask it that way. Are does does the restaurant team have a have a set of expectations for its guests? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think, um, you know, I think the main thing is that the expectation that we have for our guests is that when they come in, they are open to our experience, you know, that they are open to, you know, having um, David's food um, and having the menu um, as it is designed, because there is no menu printed. Um, there is no choice. In a sense, we offer the vegetarian menu, we offer a religious menu, a gluten-free menu, a pescatarian menu. So we have options. But what where we're moving away from is from the guest sitting down and wanting to create their own menu. Oh, I don't want mushroom. I don't want this. I don't want that. I can't have this. I don't want that. Allergies are one thing, but when we are, you know, what we're moving into now is moving away from, well, my preference is to not eat this and not eat that. It's like, that's understandable, but here, the best experience is this. And that's the main thing that we're hoping our guests have that the openness to, you know, see our cuisine um, and have it as it's intended to be eaten. That's right. a very difficult thing when you're asking people to spend 300 and I guess what, 345 for the tasting menu right now. It's a lot right. of money. Right. So, right. you know, <laughs> on the, the hospitality side, it's like, no, whatever you want, I mean, we're going to make it happen. On the other side, it's the, the um, integrity of the food. No. You don't get to go to a bookstore or into the movie theater and write the movie for the director or, sure. or for the author, right? Yeah. And and so, uh, you know, I, I remember this. It, it's interesting that that what you just said about kind of a, a 
you know, staying true to a vision that the chef has and the team has. It reminds me a little bit of, of something I heard Ferrand Adria say at El Boulid before it closed about, you know, they had 40 courses or whatever, you know, in, in, in their dinners. And, you know, there would be often, there would be, a, there would be occasions in which he would serve something he knew wasn't particularly delicious, mm-hmm. but it was something that made people think. And it yeah. was, it was a part, part and parcel of his vision about a, not only a dining experience, but I think something richer and deeper that yeah. it seems that, you know, for folks at a three-star Michelin restaurant, you have to have that point of view. You, you can't, you know, you can't, you, you can go to McDonald's if you want, you can have it without the pickle and without the cheese if you want, but there's no vision there, right? As opposed to going to a place where all the training, all the history, all the food the chef's eaten in his, in his past, you know, it, all culminates you know in that mm-hmm. table side experience yeah yeah i mean no question about it i mean there's you know there's there's always the fine line you're always kind of balancing you know explaining that and having the guest understand that but also respecting their you know position on where, what they like and what they don't um so i think it's a it's a big ask you know that we ask of our guests and you know, if you look at the, the restaurants that have three Michelin stars in, in the U.S., they're almost all tasting menu only restaurants. So right. it right. is, uh, you know, it, it is quite a thing. That's it's it is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. Um, so it, it took uh, a number of years for uh, Manresa to go from zero Michelin stars. Mm-hmm. I remember Sensovi, David's first restaurant in Saratoga, yeah. tiny little place that had amazing food. Uh, and it was an amazing experience, uh, different in, in a lot of ways, just in terms of scope, I think, and scale yeah, than, than uh, Manresa is now. Um, three Michelin stars, you've had them for five, four, five, six years, something like that at this point in time. Harder, harder to stay there than it is to get there or the opposite? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't think it's necessarily harder to stay there for relative to our stay in that echelon right um i think it's harder to get there um you know it it getting you know there there's a a lot of years of building trust with the michelin guide that your cuisine is consistent enough um, across the menu but also from night to night um, to get to that point where they're going to give you that designation Um, Will they take it away? Yeah, they'll take it away quickly for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it is really hard to keep because as soon as you get it, the only thing you worry about is losing it. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> so you know, it's not like you're working for four. Are you having fun? I mean, is, oh, is, yeah. are, is the team having fun or is it sort of constantly this, this, uh, we 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 can lose this, and if we lose this, that that's a gigantic blow. Chefs have killed themselves because they've lost stars in Europe. Chefs so, usually kill themselves. No, they're afraid of losing stars. Exactly. No joke. This is a big deal. Obviously. Yeah. Oh, it's a big uh, deal. Are you having fun doing what you're doing? Oh, definitely, man. I, I have fun every night. You know, for me, my job. You know, I'm working with vendors. I'm designing the wine list. I'm coming up with the pairings. I'm training staff. Um, but the the fun part of my job is at five thirty when we open the doors and people come in. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, everybody's different. But as soon as service starts, I'm always having fun. Um, but I think to answer your question, that it is a, an individual and personal response to that stress and that level of pressure. Um, I have fun just because that's how. I roll. Yeah. 
Right. Um, and anybody who works with me will know that, you know, I will say some of the goofiest and, you know, strangest <laughs> things to guess. Right. That's just what I do. Right. I, I, I talk about the avo taco. There you go, Mary. Um, so she'll probably never hear this too bad. Um, but anyways, you know, that's me. Um, and some people who I work with definitely are not having fun, you know, um, because the pressure is, you know, the pressure is on everybody every night. Right. At Michelin level, uh, there's a differing level of pressure, right? The pressure on the service team, it's really intense because of the guest's perspective. Right. 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 We see the guests, we talk to the guests. So uh, I know, you know, if I'm meeting their expectation or not, or if I'm able to have a bond with them and have a, a relationship that, you know, goes through an evening. And then there are guests who either I don't connect with or they don't connect with me or they're not looking for that in their experience. They are just a unit unto themselves, which is cool too, because I'm hoping they're still having a good time. Right, right. However, in the Michelin world, the pressure is on the kitchen, right? Wow. And it's, I think, very difficult to have fun in that environment um, because you don't see the guests, you don't know who the guests are, and none of us know who Michelin is. Um, so that is a unique relationship. And, you know, with the Michelin stars, it is not about the ambience. It is not about the service. It is about the plate and it is about the kitchen and it is about the cuisine. So, you know, that, 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 that's a different kind of pressure. Um, you know, I'm, I, I know that, you know, everybody who's working in the kitchen loves what they do. Um, right. but I'm sure at various points in a given evening, they're probably not having fun, <laughs> Yeah, but maybe they all are. I, I, so, you know, it, it, from my perspective, uh, you know, there restaurants have always been sort of my kind of um, cultural north star in a way. You've never been a religious person per se, except when I walk into an amazing place and um, there's this orchestra being conducted for the guests that arrive, and the elements are numerous: the the, the linens, the, the the personality of the people, the wine list, the food, um, the the best restaurants, I think, have a meaning that's greater than just a purveyor of a good experience. Three-star Michelin restaurants, are, you know, sort of by by definition, in a way, are the sine qua non of quality. What what does a restaurant like Manresa mean? Do you think, from a cultural standpoint, from the standpoint within, sort of, in the context of hospitality and that desire to take care of people? Yeah, I mean. You know, each any restaurant kind of like this, like ours, is just going to be a very unique and personal expression of the chef owner, but also the people that work there. So, you know, it, it is a it is a place in time and a place, a space, um, and so it, it has this sort of resonance for people who who come in and really sort of get what we're doing, um, and then I think. You know, and hopefully it's not too many people that the magic just isn't there. Um, I think when you're talking about taste and things you eat uh, and and or drink, but especially, you know, if we're talking about the cuisine, you know, there is always going to be people who just, nah, this just doesn't move me, you know, and that's just a, some, a fact that we deal with. Um, but, you know, I do think that, you know, it is just this unique, unique space and experience. We're delivering an experience that is just a place and time on a nightly basis um and that you know and, and i think people really you know crave that right right i i i have really enjoyed this conversation i really appreciate your time i i we've covered a lot of ground 
if there's anything I haven't covered, let me know. Thanks very much for uh, all your help. And, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Sounds good. Appreciate Thanks. being with you. Well, I think that went well. Great conversation with Jim Rolston. Dude obviously knows what he's talking about. He's a, a terrific guy, a very supportive of wineries, and obviously uh, has thought a lot about the role of great restaurants in culture and how they affect hospitality, how they help to take care of people. Hope you enjoyed this podcast, this episode of the Wine Saves Lives media platform. I look forward to seeing you soon. Stephen Kent Miros is signing off.